Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, a podcast about gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Anthony. This is Chris. This is Daniel. This is Drew. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. A special episode because we have Daniel remote from uh, South Carolina. Wait a minute. That's not how he always sounds? <laughs> hello, 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 hello. <laughs> I'm a little worried if you experience me as a disembodied voice. <laughs> we always experience you that way. <laughs> You've learned something new today. Yeah. Our perception of you. <laughs> this, we don't actually see you. It's just this voice in the distance. I don't know if that makes me more worried about me or you. That's true. That's true. It's like a you collective guys... delusion, though. I don't know. Well, we can never tr- truly prove Daniel's existence. He knows that. Yeah, there you go. Why are we talking about him as if he weren't here? Was he ever here, Drew? <laughs> <laughs> Is he even here now? Hmm. I'm going to get an email from somebody on Board Game Geek saying, you guys are just talking to yourselves for like the first 10 minutes of this podcast. <laughs> it's a Board Gamers Anonymous Fight Club. <laughs> Where's Tyler Durden? Is he on the cast? Sure he is. Of course he is. He's always here. <laughs> uh, all right. So if you experience slight differentiation in your audio from uh, normal, that's because Daniel is on Skype. Uh, hopefully it's not too much of a difference, and um, we'll edit it out in the goofy hiccups. But he is joining us uh, from a few hundred miles away, and uh, we'll just plow along like normal, see how it goes. All right. All right. So first things first, um, want to remind everybody that we are on Facebook, Board Gamers Anonymous, on Twitter. Check us out, BGA Podcast. And um, we actually are also on Board Game Geek, which we're getting a lot of great feedback lately. Um not only for each episode that we're putting out, but, you know, when we make mistakes, which... No, that never happens. Personally, you know, I always like when somebody points it out because, for whatever reason, the four of us don't notice as a group. Yes, the uh, four of us. It keeps us honest. It does keep That's us it. honest. <laughs> <laughs> should all read the rules together. Stop trusting me to read the rules. If, if you, we didn't trust you to read the rules, we would never play any games. It's true, it's true. Come on, this is, this is a Lego Playland. We... Open the box, and then we can play with it any way we want. Yeah. <laughs> so our most recent hiccup, in case you missed it, uh, Mice and Mystics, we played a special variant in which we all died. Again and again. Yes. And again. And again. So I just, apparently I made it much harder than it needed to be by misreading one or two key rules about when the uh, chapter marker moves rather than the end of chapter marker. So uh, basically we died early, and we probably would have destroy both of those chapters we talked about last time uh so <laughs> what impact that has in the game i don't know we still had fun so it's, it's fun dying let's face it yeah exactly <laughs> it speaks to the quality of the game if we played it wrong and i killed everybody and we still had fun <laughs> yes so we were playing on hardcore mode essentially exactly yeah that's how i teach deal with it <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so thanks for everybody on Board Game Geek who pointed that out. Uh, Thank you. It is a great game, and it's it's awesome. So many people out there notice that so quickly, like they played it enough and, and know it well enough to just be like, "Wait a second, that's not quite right." Uh, and now I will adjust for future playthroughs. Um, we also got a ton of great feedback for our World Cup uh, tabletop games, the fantasy uh, mega extravaganza. Uh, a bunch of people threw in a b- lot of extra what they thought should have won, some feedback, of course, on what we thought should have won. Nobody really disagreed with Dungeons & Dragons. A few people pointed out it was kind of a, a no-brainer. It just, like, it stacked the deck a little. Hey, Anthony, that was a no-brainer. Dungeons & Dragons. Yeah. 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 To be fair, though, when we started, we thought Magic would be up there, too, and we kicked that one out in the first round, so. 
Yeah, we were kind of hiding for our lives for a couple of days just in case, but it seemed like the Magic players were, I don't know, super overly confident and not worrying about where Magic kind of fell. Or maybe agreed. Maybe, yeah. Because it really, I mean, honestly, Magic is its own game. I think it's above and beyond separate from anything that Tabletop has ever have or ever probably will have just because it's just so massive with the lore and the cards and the strategy and the meta that it's it only ha- it has honestly has its own little place in the universe of tabletop gaming. You think fantasy CCGs should be considered an entirely different possibly, yeah, but I think sport yeah, I think so, of, but Magic itself should be a, a whole separate category. It's just it's its own little universe. I mean, it's been on ESPN. I mean, <laughs> once you yeah. get to ESPN, you're really your own thing. The World Series of Magic the Gathering. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we had a lot of great feedback, and so, I mean, thanks for everybody for hopping on and telling us what you think. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple people pointed out that it may not have been fair to kick off uh, games like Cyclades and Kemet. Yeah. I do want to point out, though, that only one of us has played Cyclades, and I, none of us have played Kemet. So even if we had put them on there, we would have just been like, oh, yeah, there's some gods running around and stuff. But the games are so awesome that when you just even look at them, yeah. you're like, they got to be on the list. <laughs> but we're going we're gonna to fix that. So the next podcast, we will review Cyclades and Kemet and bring it to the table, and everyone will see how awesome it is, and then we'll go back and revise the contest in what four years that's that's, that's world do it again yeah do it again four years <laughs> after which 400 new games have come out with the same theme and we'll but, uh, but we have a world series of games we'll have a super bowl of games yeah. you know, we'll have a lot of a lot of sports <laughs> metaphors to do we're gonna news jack this podcast <laughs> every three months <laughs> sounds like a plan all right so and yeah so everybody thanks for your feedback um if you have new feedback, if you have yet to listen to that podcast, uh, hop on, let us know what you think. I'm sure there's games that you think we should have added, or maybe even some you didn't even know about. I got at least two comments from people saying they were going to check out Defenders of the Realm, based on your guys' glowing review. Awesome. Um, I also want to check out Defenders of the Realm, based on your guys' glowing review. So, that was cool. That was really cool. So, that, uh, you know... Mention what you think. We'll bring it up on the podcast. We'll talk about it and uh, either tell you if you're right or wrong. (laughs) Which is really what people want. (laughs) All right. Uh, And then also we got a few questions, actually. And I'm going to mention this at the beginning, but we'll talk about it at the end. But a few people dropped some questions on us on BoardGameGeek, sent me a couple emails. When we do get questions, we're going to try to include them at the end of the podcast. So this is your top-of-the-cast reminder that if you have a question... Send it to us on Facebook, Twitter, BoardGameGeek, or through the website. There are like eight ways to contact us, so you have zero excuses not to do it. I want your questions. Uh, Feedback's cool, too, but, you know, tell us how awesome we are and let us know what you think. All right, so we're going to dive right into the news now. Drew's got a bunch of cool stuff, and uh, it's award season, so lots of things to opinionate on. Let's shout it from the tabletop. And yeah, let's go with the word season. Um, since the last time we gathered in your little dungeon, Anthony, uh, a lot of awards have come out. One of them is old news by now, the Spiel des Jahres. That, I think that came out right after we, we last met. Yes. Uh, the uh, So everybody knows Kinderspiel was Camel Up and Kinderspiel Istanbul. Mm-hmm. Istanbul. Um, uh, Constantinople? <laughs> that's, what the, that's what the game was formerly known as before it got a reprint and uh, you know new skin. And I'm I'm a little worried about this whole German on German favoritism uh, <laughs> going on here. 
you know, are they deserving winners? Yes or no? That's basically the question. Or is it just, you know, patting each other's back? Well, I think I think the uh, Kenner Spiel, as, as far as camels up, right? They're really looking for that family type of game. And if you've seen this game, it's literally little wood camels kind of marching around a board in a race mm-hmm. type of format. You have this cardboard pyramid where you put dice in, you shake it up, you turn it over, and you pull this little plunger piece, and a die rolls out, and that's the game. So the, the camels actually go around. The, it's kind of like a roll-and-move type of game. But the difference is, is the camels can actually camel up and go on top of another camel's back and ride along with it. And then you'll hmm. be doing betting as the game goes on. It's completely random. It's utterly the kind of like the face of randomness in gaming. So I guess it fits for a family game. So there's no real strategy there other than where you place your bets. But even then, you never know what the dice are going to roll. So it doesn't really make much of a difference. Hmm. There's a similar game to that called Hightail It using kangaroos instead of camels, mm-hmm. which is a pure strategy game, no randomness. But it's sort of dry. I can see your point where you you throw in little bells and whistles for the family and it becomes addictive. A lot of fun. Yeah, I think when you play with a family, you're always going to have your younger family members there. You're going to have your kids. And in order for them to have a chance at all to win, you know, win a game against adults, it has to be completely random. Yeah. I was sorry to see that... Uh, you know, concept didn't win. We'll we'll talk about that a little bit later. And also, Splendor was on that list, which we also reviewed in a previous podcast. And that was a great game too, but probably a little too much strategy for you know a family with kids. Yeah, yeah. Out of the three, I would think Splendor. I mean, I haven't played Camels Up, but Splendor was a really strong game. But in that family-ish category, eh, maybe I could see the split. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's why you have the other category for the heavier games. Yeah, but it doesn't quite fit there either. It's not no, that heavy. It's so. true. The yeah, the Kennerspiel is not as heavy as you might think either. It's, I think what someone tried explaining that online that it's it's like the a, a gamer's game rather than a heavy game. I know there's another award coming out, the Deutscher Spiel Prize. That's for the heavy strategy games. So the Kennerspiel is sort of like a medium weight mm. category. Yeah. Even the Russian Railroads was on that, I think. It was, it was a the, recommended game. It was a recommended, it was recommended it but it wasn't one of the nominations. Well, you had, um, okay. you had Istanbul, Concordia, and Rococo. Okay. Yeah. So Istanbul won, and that was the lightest of those three games. And what's really interesting about that game is it has this variable setup. So you actually have these cards that when you place them out, you can either place them out in a certain order, or you can place them out randomly. And you'll move around the different cards as if it was like a little map. And you'll leave your assistants behind to do different tasks for you. So it's a light game. It probably could play with maybe in a more advanced family. It's definitely worthy of the award, but I would have liked to have seen something a little bit heavier win. Mm. Just because I think it's a little bit better for the hobby. Well, that, that award, like I said, is coming up in September, the Deutscher Spiel. Russian Railroads is in that competition. Okay. Probably the favorite. To, what other nominees? Yeah, I, I did not write others all down. I just looked at that and thought, that's going to win. Well, you saw Russian Railroads and you were like, <laughs> yeah. done. Done. <laughs> well, it's got the buzz. There you it go. It does, yeah. It's a buzzworthy game for sure. Um, the uh, Just while we're in, talking about German games, the Spiel de Spiel Award. Spiele. Uh, Austrian game. Okay. And their game of the year was called a Bluxen. 
Which I've never heard of. Of course it was. <laughs> what the heck is a Bluxen? I have no idea. <laughs> uh, it's Ravensburger game. Okay. So it's a family game. Okay. Uh, Wolfgang Kramer and Michael Kiesling were the designers. Um, what was interesting is that the Spiel des Spiel um, came out with their recommendations. Um, in Actually, they had great subcategories for this because the subcategories were designed with audiences in mind. So one of the subcategories was children. Um, which had speed cups. I've never a lot of games I've never heard of because most of them are German, and then speed cups, whatever that is. Families, Camel Up, Tortuga, among those recommendations. Games for friends. This concept was one of the recommendations there. And then they had a category of games for experts, where Caverna, Russian Railroads. That's great. So I I love that concept where you're scaling your recommendations based on who, what the ideal audience is for that. And then of course there's the Dice Tower Awards. Great. Uh, July 7th. We're all familiar with those. And how did we do? 14 different categories. Okay. Not all of which we agree on. <laughs> we agree <laughs> with uh, with them on. Um, I don't know. We're going to post all this to uh, the website. Um, Game of the Year was Caverna. Yay! We covered that. The odd thing about the Dice Tower Awards is that, like Caverna, Game of the Year, was up for other awards that didn't win. And sure. there were some games that won some awards, didn't win other awards. It looked like Dice Tower was making an effort to award as many different games as possible. So that everybody got a little bit of recommendation. recommendation. Um, some quick ideas. Um, innovative, innovative game, Rampage, which is now Terror in Meeple City. Yeah. <laughs> Most obviously to be sued <laughs> game. Strategy game, Russian Railroads, Co-op, Freedom. Family game, Forbidden Desert. So they really spread it around. There was no um, overwhelming game that won all the awards. Uh, Russian Railroads. Oh, wait. No, no, the one we want to talk about is Freedom because it was a game that we didn't get strong reviews of here. Uh, a couple sure. negative, a couple mixed. Uh, here, Freedom won three different awards uh, for co-op, for a new designer, and for game theming. Do we think that it deserved any of those? I mean, I can tell you what they were up against, what it was up against, too. But So what was it up against in each category? Uh, co-op, uh, Forbidden Desert, Eldritch Horror, Pathfinder. Um, the Sorry for the um, um, we'll cut those well, out. That, that's, a, that's a very tough category. There's, that's a lot of really great co-op games. Yeah. I, I can already confidently say that I do not believe Freedom deserved to beat any of those. That's why I say it's... God, Forbidden Desert won for best family game, and it's almost like they said, okay, that's enough. We're not going to let that game win any others. And I think the, the challenge, you know, anytime you play a co-op game, it's always that there's going to be an alpha leader, and then everyone else just, just kind of like moves their pawns based upon what that person says. So co-op game is always a bit of a challenge. Freedom really does have that alpha gamer problem because... It is almost a mathematical formula where you do this and then this and this and this and this will happen and this will move here and that will move here. And you it's so tight that you can't vary from that what you believe is the final kind of formula of where to move things or otherwise you lose the game completely. Mm. Now, I'm not saying it shouldn't be a hard game, but it should have enough flexibility to the game where individual members can make their own choices without fear of like reprisal as far as... I made my own choice, and it either went really well or horrible. <laughs> you know, I, I should be okay with a choice. And I think that's what 
let's say, for example, Forbidden Desert, you do have some flexibility there. There is still some alpha gamer in there, but you still have some flexibility. If you can make some choices, you can decide where to dig, and you can see what's there, and it has some randomness. But other than that little die in uh, Freedom, there really isn't much randomness to kind of let a player play the game. Have choices. Yeah. Yeah. Eldritch Horror seems to be another one of those games that encourages alphas because of the mythology. Sure. Whoever at the table thinks that they know Lovecraft better than everybody (laughs) suddenly uses that as a pulpit. Sure. So, um, yeah, Forbidden Desert seems to be a better one. Family and co-op both. And then uh, Freedom also in Best Theming. Uh, they were up against Eldritch Horror, Rampage, Lewis, and Clark. That's a little tougher because I might give it to them because it must have been very difficult, if almost impossible, to theme a game about slavery. Mm. So how do you approach the subject? You know, do you do meeples? And if you did meeples, are they black meeples? You know, how do you, you know, what's the context for it? What do you write on the cards? You know, what's the victory conditions? Is there a victory condition other than utter, utterly winning the game? I mean, that's a really tough situation. So Yeah, it was tough when I played. It, Even though they were just little blocks, little yeah. cubes, I still felt like they were human beings. And that's a successful theme. Yes. Is where you're caught into that part of the game. In contrast to Lords of Waterdeep, where they're supposed to be clerics, fighters, and wizards, and thieves. And when you play the game, you're like, oh, four orange cubes, two purple cubes. Yeah. So, And that game <laughs> yeah. has theme plaster all over it, but you don't really experience the theme when you play the game. Whereas in Freedom, a lot of that game looks almost mathematical. The, you know, the, um, the slave catchers are, what, different shapes? Mm-hmm. So you, you kind of follow their path on the board, but yet you feel that this game is so important and these people are going to die so it's it really is strange how you, that theme does pull you in so for them I would give that I think yeah, that's a good choice I can choice. see that one for that that category I, I don't know actually I so this might just be because I didn't like freedom as much uh, I was on the low end of enjoying freedom but the mechanics in freedom don't actually seem to recapitulate the theme at all I don't I don't feel the theme in freedoms the way freedom plays I mean the way you lose your slaves is boats keep coming and there's just not enough space for them on the docks, right? I don't think we lost a single slave to a slave catcher. It was always to people just kept on shipping them in and being like, oh, there's too many, throw them all overboard. Which, you know, things like that happened on occasion. But if you wanted to successfully capture anything like the... uh, the sources of mortality and slavery, right? It would be things like attrition on plantations. And you would be looking at more active slave catchers, more dangerous slave catchers. Um, it just felt like it was sort of plastered on to me, whereas in Lewis and Clark even, which is another game I didn't enjoy very much, but uh, when you play that game, right, there are certain elements of the mechanics which capture theme, right? You have too much stuff on your boats, you don't move fast. But that makes sense. Right, you're overburdened. Um, I think that these other games in the same category have a fair claim to having beaten Freedom as far as theme is gone concerned. Right, having a better theme than Freedom has. Or, uh, now, okay, a couple of those games, Freedom and Lewis and Clark, especially, were uh, created by new designers. That was a category. The new design, Brian Mayer, uh, who designed Freedom, won that award. Lewis and Clark and Euphoria were also strong contenders. Um, you do you think Lewis and Clark 
as a as a design game, should the designer of that game? A... I think I think Lewis and Clark is a better design game because, as Daniel was saying, the thematically it all it all follows quite well. You know, your everything your canoes are loaded down. You have to take certain you know certain people have certain abilities, and you get to choose who you want to put on your expedition. So it's it really is. You really are making choices that's thematic to the game, and not just random. Whereas with freedom, it you know it is very thematic, but the choices you're making is I need to go to this path and move this block here and move this path there, and I don't know the choices I were the choices I were making in freedom were not very thematic, and they were almost kind of written right when the cards came out in the line. You were kind of stuck with whatever the cards came out on. You couldn't choose, you know. And if if it was a bad card out there, it affected you. You had no you had no choice over it. Mm. So, All right. But both good games. So it's yeah. most, you know, the people have spoken. The dice, <laughs> dice tower. Yeah, the dice tower network. As part of the dice tower network, we disavow any comments made by Drew. We agree with all the comments <laughs> and all the awards given by the dice tower network because the dice tower network is awesome. <laughs> Right. Speaking of which, you know, it's a good time to bring this up. Um, Dice Tower, yes, has begun a line of games. Um, this has really raised a very small controversy. It's not a big deal, but um, Dice Tower, known as a reviewing website, now they're putting their name on a line of board games. Dice Tower Essentials. Well, this is a vassal picking out some what he feels is like a diamond in the rough, mm-hmm. and then a company produced. Well, I guess he has in con- you know in conjunction with a company. To bring that out to the market. Yeah. It's not like they're designing games. It's, boy, I was doing some research on the history of that game. The game, um, it used to be called Robin Hood. Where is it? The Sheriff, Sheriff of Nottingham. Sheriff of Nottingham. It was yeah. called Robin Hood, and before that it was called um, on the Crossing the Border, something like that. It was a German game, then it became a South American game, and now <laughs> it's here. So, yeah, it's basically a man with a lot of experience in gaming deciding here's something that American market needs to to get so the question becomes what if we don't like it (laughs) Uh, that you know we'll see when the time comes but any any effort to bring uh, an underutilized or an unknown game to attention i'm okay with yeah absolutely it's not like you know using his using the resources of the dice tower to produce new games right you know the game that was produced Dice Tower was never slapped anywhere on that. The one that has his name on it, right. nothing personal. Um, in this case, it's an existing game. He's probably already played it many times. And if he any- wants it to be on the market, yeah. No. yeah. And, and if anything, nothing personal, which we covered. He's really downplayed it. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't up for awards. It wasn't you know pushed on on the other podcasts. It was just kind of like, here's a game I produced. I really liked it. I hope you guys like it too. So, funny thing is. I went on the website. They don't talk about it being a reprint. They don't talk about the the um, the pedigree of the game. Sure. At least I could find. It's like he does. You know, he's making it sound like this is brand new, and I think that's a a, a PR, a bad PR move. Um, he should establish the brand of Tom Vassell Dice Tower, finding these obscure games, bringing them to attention. That should be the brand. I'd be curious to see what other games he finds to bring out. Uh, a couple quick notes. Nothing too deep about other new games that I thought were worthy of note. Um, Days of Wonder is coming out with Five Tribes. It's now available on pre-order. That's why it's news. Um, and the, the rules are available for download, too. What I found fascinating about this game is 
the game mechanic is similar to Mancala, that ancient game of you pick up your your tiles or whatever, your your meeples, and then spread them around the board. Um, it's a it's an ancient classic mechanic. You don't see all that often, and I'd love to see what they do with it. Okay. Now they adapt it. Cool. Days of Wonder. It's going to be interesting. Yeah. Their one game a year release. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> Three other news items that we're going to put on the on the website. Um, just positive stuff about board games. For the young people, the Atlantic Magazine had this article: How Family Game Night Makes Kids into Better Students. So you want to read that. And then uh, an Alzheimer's conference in Denmark last week um, showed how playing games and puzzles can actually prevent the the onset or prevent the spread of Alzheimer's in elderly people. So whether you're young, whether you're old, play games. Sure. And that's the news. All right. Uh, one more thing in there that we did not mention, um, just very recently, we what? got Board Gamers Anonymous was submitted and approved on Stitcher. <gasps> Stitcher, it's right there. It's the first item yeah, I had yeah. on that. <laughs> so I know Drew is he, he's actually the one who pointed this out to me, and I submitted it, and they approved us. So we are now available on Stitcher. If you use Stitcher app um, as our own standalone podcast, we're also listed in the Dice Tower Network on Stitcher, so you can find us that way too. Yeah, it's it's like iTunes, but if you hate iTunes like I do, get the Stitcher app. It's real easy to use. Search us, listen to us. Yeah, and it's curated, which is interesting. So like iTunes, anybody could submit anything they want. Yeah, and Apple pretty much approved it, unless it's just like white noise in the background. Stitcher, it's it's an application process. They have to approve you. It took like a week, so it's probably they're gonna clear away some of the dredge. I'm not like tooting our own horn here, saying that we're better than. X whatever podcasts, it just means you're not going to find complete messy garbage or people who haven't updated in two two years. That's it. The um, I think there's twenty some board game podcasts on Stitcher, so you'll find a lot. Uh, ours is number one, obviously the best one, but <laughs> you'll find some other good ones. The Dice Tower Network is on there too, and you can also get as an app for your iPhone, which I found out, which was great. Mm, yeah. So you can kind of and you can kind of subscribe to different channels, so it can actually kind of load those up for you. Yeah, yeah, and it has a cool thing. Like with the Dice Tower Network, I know um, Tom Vassell set this up. If you go and subscribe to that network, then you can just cycle through them. Like it'll put them into a feed based on which ones are newest. So it'll just put all the newest podcasts from each of them together in a playlist. So if you want to go through and try out some new ones from the Dice Tower Network, you can. They're all there together in one list. Stitcher.com. All right. Check us out there. All right. So that's the news of this episode. Um, next up, we're going to talk about some acquisition disorders and then uh, jump into what we've been playing lately. Acquisition Disorder Corner. You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. All right, acquisition disorders. Anything interesting uh, you've picked up or seen on the radar lately? Daniel, well, I know you're out there on a vacation, basically. You've probably spent a lot of time shopping. Yeah, uh, well, so I found uh, a, a copy of Mice and Mystics on sale online. I picked that up, and I uh, picked up a copy of Pandemic, because it's one I've been meaning to add to my collection. And then I went to every Barnes & Noble within about 50 miles. So I hit three different stores and uh, picked up Agricola, Dungeon Command, Sting of Loth, Flashpoint, Puerto Rico, Spartacus, Trajan, and Zombies with not one, not two, but three exclamation points. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of this was just trying to 
fill in holes in my collections where some classics should be. And the rest of this was me being a compulsive buyer and purchasing everything I found on sale. Hey, Daniel, have you been able to hit any thrift shops yet? Uh, I've tried to. Uh, I've been moving around, went to a couple used bookstores. No luck at the thrift shops so far, but I'm going to keep hitting up the uh, Salvation Armies and the Goodwills. All right. And I'll let you know if I find anything for you, Drew. Diamond in the rough. <laughs> it's out there somewhere. Yeah, I've, uh, I've actually gotten lucky on the uh, clearance front. I did not drive to six different Barnes & Nobles. I just went to my one local one with my son because he likes to play with the train table. Um, and they had Trajan I picked up, I think. Uh, on sale there. And then I was at Target yesterday, and they had Star Trek Catan and uh, Axis mm. of Villains on sale. So, I've just been getting lucky, because I'm not actually looking for these. I'm just stumbling on them. <laughs> Didn't you also get the uh, D&D starter set, the new one? I did, yes. That was not on sale. But I did find it. So. You did get it. Well, yeah. you got a couple days before the official release, too. Yeah, yeah. I was at um, a, a hobby store in Red Bank, and they have like 10 games on the shelf, so it's not they have some board games, but it's not a board game store. It's like a model train store. Uh, oh, wow. But they did have three copies of the starter set on the shelf, so I picked one up. Been kind of perusing the rules lightly. So, yeah, we'll have to crack that open and try that out at some point in the yeah, future. Yeah, I've been digging through it a little bit. It's it's interesting. To, I don't have quite as much context as probably you, Drew, or yeah. Daniel, in terms of what's changed, but it's definitely, definitely changed since 4th edition. I can tell that much. So yeah. it'll be interesting. Well, I'm ready for a trip down memory lane with that, so... Yeah, <laughs> that'll be fun. I'm looking forward to playing through D&D 5 at some point, and uh, it, it looks very promising. Yeah, it does. So hopefully we get that to the table soon. Uh, it's a little bit bigger of an investment than just picking up a board game and learning the rules real quick. Someone's got to mm, read all that and yeah. put it together, but it's, it's exciting, so I want to play. Um, something that's been on a lot of people's radars, I've been hearing a lot about, is uh, this game called Temporum that's going to be released at Gen Con. I, I don't know if it's this year's Gen Con or next year. Um, Rio Grande and Donald X of Dominion fame is creating this time travel, time-altering game. Uh, it's, it's a hand management game, but I love time travel, anything with time travel. So I'm going to be clocking this from here on out, <laughs> where you can just play with different timelines and... Uh, with different what-if scenarios. I'm looking forward to that. Temporum is the name of that game. Keep an eye on it. I've still been looking for Dice Masters. I haven't mentioned it in a couple episodes, but just so everybody knows, I don't have it yet. <laughs> Send your Dice Masters to Anthony. Yeah, just to rub it in, too. Like I was at The Complete Strategist in Manhattan, three blocks from my office, and they had the boosters, which they get occasionally. No starters. But I picked up nine of the boosters, um or buck each so why not and I've, so for a game you don't have for a game i don't have <laughs> i've now spent 15 dollars that's on. that's when you know it's an addiction yeah it's just in the in the 19th century they would call that your trousseau is that your uh you're saving it up for yeah that when special I day in the future when i have it i'm gonna be ready uh but out of these nine packs i pulled two rare three rares and a super rare which is way off the charts in terms of like what should be coming out of that box i'm sure but uh so if you have a spare starter set and want the super rare mr fantastic <laughs> and are listening to this <laughs> let's let's deal i will trade with you so hit me up on board game geek because i can't play with it so i don't care if it's super rare <laughs> uh that's that was the worst like come on whiz kids don't put super rares in here because now now i want it 
Um, <laughs> all right, so that's everything for acquisition disorders this week. Uh, real quick, we're gonna swing it to Chris to talk about kicking the habit. Kicking the habit. So you've definitely been keeping up with Kicking the Habit. That's our weekly podcast about everything Kickstarter. So this coming week, we have some really interesting stuff for you. Flashpoint Honor and Duty expansion is coming out on Kickstarter. Now, Danny just mentioned this. He was able to pick up the base set. And I did too, actually on Kickstarter a little while ago. And the expansion comes with another board, two-sided. And one side has an airplane disaster... And the other side has a subway disaster. And in addition, with this expansion, which is only $15 on Kickstarter, and that includes free shipping, there's also going to be a special character card, Fire Prevention Officer, which only comes with that Kickstarter. So this might be something to pick up on, and I talk a little bit about this more on the podcast. Core Worlds Digital. So if you've ever had a chance to play Core Worlds, it's by Andrew Parks. It's this great deck builder game about conquering different galaxies. And there's actually going to be an iOS and a little bit later on an Android version of this too. Now what's great about having an iOS implementation of this is if you've ever played a deck builder, especially a deck builder as large as this, the setup and breakdown times for these games is tremendous. So to have an opportunity to actually just click on a button and being able to play through different strategies is, a, is enormous. What's also good about this, it's only $5. So it's not your $9, 10 $12 kind of Kickstarter backer. It's a straight $5 backing level, and you get an additional card for that. So that's pretty great, too. And you get the game two weeks in advance of its release date. Hmm. So that's pretty nice. And the artwork looks great, so it's something you should definitely check out. Another game, and Anthony knows a lot about this, Everything Alhambra has come out from Queen Games. So if you know anything about Queen Games, if you know anything about Kickstarter, you know about their big box editions. So this big box edition incorporates 20 different modules in five expansions, and in addition, a new expansion, the Falconers, comes with this. But that's not all. You can get an additional extra special box that has all of these separate games that kind of are part of the universe that you can play with the game or separately, and that's not it. <laughs> you can actually get not just their big box, but you can get the big box for Fresco and Kingdom Builder. And it's just, they have all their big boxes available in one shot. So you can get all of their big boxes, all of their expansions, all of their stretch goals for $400. Wow. But it's literally everything that they make oh, in one Kickstarter. Wow. So if you want to kind of like be done with a whole collection you can do it at one place so it's definitely something you should be checking out yeah it's got me like thinking what if aeg comes out with their their tempest big box oh, like that'd be cool. every single tempest game all in one i can't believe why they haven't done that yet other than the fact that with queen games their little expansion and modules are so small that it makes sense to put them in one big box yeah the Tempest is really separate games with That's separate designs. I would like that too. Yeah, but then again, everyone everyone pretty much has a, a copy of Love Letter. Yeah. So do you want another copy of Love Letter? If you're early, you did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Give them away. Special or, edition. Or the, the 19th different edition of it. Yeah. <laughs> and then finally, um, Zombicide Season 3 is coming out on Kickstarter. So once again, 
if you knew Queen Games, you also know Zombicide, you know Kickstarter, that they always raise over a million dollars. So they were looking for $100,000, which is cute, because they raised <laughs> over $1.6 million for this one. Now, for me personally, having played Zombicide, it was kind of, it was okay. But this Zombicide Season 3 really sounds like the perfect version of Zombicide, because not only do you get the special characters and all the zombies that come along with it, but you actually get team actions. So instead of me going out there and shooting my gun and then waiting for Drew to take his turn, he goes out there, he shoots his gun, you can actually play cards where we all shoot our guns, we all run, we all charge, we all do different things. Simultaneous movement. Simultaneous movement. Yeah. In addition to that, they also have an expansion that's available for Zombicide. And I like this a lot, too, because a lot of the horror movies, either the movies themselves or the TV shows, is you often come across other survivors. So the expansion is called Angry Neighbors. So you'll actually get come across these NPCs that you'll get to pick up as part of your team, and they have special abilities which you can play along with, too. So mm-hmm. if you're ever going to pick up Zombicide, this would be the time. Um... It's really a good set. The, the artwork is great. The miniatures are great. This is cool mini or not, so you're going to get a good time with this. And it has a good number of stretch goals, so even if you didn't get the early birds kind of thing, you'll definitely get all the stretch goals, which is really part and parcel of what cool mini is all about. Cool. Yeah, I don't know if I'll pick that one up. The Alhambra one I'm tempted on, though. I, I was looking on Board Game Geek, and someone did the math. Like, with all the modules, there are 65,000 ways to play this game if you get the big box. <laughs> oh, man. So, that was tempting. Yeah. So. Just a basic little tiling game. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but there's, what, 24 modules with the six expansions? Man. It's, it's enormous. And the, the separate games, too. So you have Thieves, you have, you have places where it changes money, it has, we change player order. So there, the other games that, are, that you can attach to the base game, not just the modules and the expansions. The modules and expansions just add a little different flavor, some different buildings, some different opportunities, but the separate games that kind of play in attachment with it are pretty awesome. Although, I do, at some point, you're just, there's just too much good. Yeah. So it might just it might just take a game and just be like too many levels on top of it. Mm, you yeah. might want to pick certain modules or certain expansions to go with the gameplay. But you got options. Yeah. I, I'm an old timer, but I am so glad to be living in this day and age. You buy a game 20, 30 years ago, and all you got was the game. Sure. <laughs> and now there's so much support for it. Yeah. If it's a good game, you, you'll never get tired of it. So, oh, sorry. Yeah. Go ahead, disembodied voice. <laughs> so, Drew, the challenge for you is to create the ultimate mashup. All of, these, uh, all of the Alhambra expansions, all of the modules, all of the related games... All at once. At one time. Okay. One time. I'll start working on that. Entire big box. We'll call it the Cones of Dunshire. <laughs> <laughs> you know someone's made rules for those, actually? Yeah. I saw that, yeah. They're actually going to play that at Gen Con. Aw. I want to go to Gen Con. <laughs> so you can find out about all these different campaigns and new campaigns coming out each and every week at Kick in the Habit. So check me out. I'm covering all that stuff. And then you will be able to follow up with updates at our website, BoardGamersAnonymous.com. Yeah, definitely check that out. We're up to, I think you're up to seven as of the release of this podcast. Yeah. And so. it's and it's only a 15-minute podcast, so you'll get all your information you need in the 15 minutes to let you know if you should back a project or if you should run away screaming 
or if you should run away screaming and still buy the Zombicide because it's part of the screaming, the game. <laughs> you know, it's thematic. It's thematic. Thank you for doing all that work for us, Chris. <laughs> you got it. All right, so that's kicking the habit. Next up, let's look at some of the stuff we've been playing lately. At the table this week. All right, so this week we played uh, quite a few games. The first one on the list here is Guildhall, which was uh, one of the recommended games on the Spiel des Jahres laundry list of games this year. Um, I don't know which category that was in. It was in the awesome category. Awesome, okay. Guildhall is awesome. So this game, you might have seen it around the uh, game store. It's got this lovely cover of a pig farmer and some other characters in the background. Um, but don't let the questionable cover art fool you. The game is actually very solid. And that's surprising, too. Out of a, In a world of Euro games with medieval farmers, this one kind of is set apart. Yeah. <laughs> In a world of Euro games. <laughs> <laughs> we need that one. So basically what this is, Guildhall, is uh, it's a card game. It's a very simple card game um, with a set collection mechanic and action selection. So basically you'll have a hand of cards. You'll play them. Uh, you get two actions per turn. You'll play your cards. They have actions based on how many cards you've already played um, that are in your Guildhall. And in your Guildhall, you can only have one card. You can't have any duplicates, basically. So... There are six different professions. Each of those has five different colors. You're trying to create a set for each profession. Nothing can overlap. So you can't play anything that's already been played. You can't add anything that's already been added. You can't steal anything that you already have from another player. That's about it. So there's a lot of different kinds of mechanics built in there in terms of what each of the professions does. They have different actions based on how many cards you've already played. Uh, what you'll do will depend on what other people have. But the goal is to build a set when you build a set, you flip it over, you use the set to buy victory points. That's it. Um, it plays two to four, and it's supposed to take, I think it's supposed to take 30 minutes. <laughs> it took us like an hour, hour and a half, but we were learning. Um, and there are a lot of cards in the game that mess with your neighbor. And if you're trying to win, you're going to use these liberally. It's going to drag the game out quite a bit. Mm -hmm. uh, but despite that, and I don't generally like games that overstay their welcome, um, I don't, I don't think it quite got to that point. It was close. But I did have a lot of fun with it, just because it is very tightly packed, and um, every action you take will, you know, it'll affect your tableau, but also everybody else is watching what you're doing constantly. So, and there's just enough chaining in there, uh, you know, one card play that allow you to do something else. The weavers and the dancers in particular are really cool. So you can kind of build up a little, you know, in your hand, build up a little couple actions you could play two, three, four things at a time, even though you only get the two actions, that can blow everybody, you know, like, that's your big move. It has the big move moment, which is fun. Yes, that's true. Big moment because I, for most of the game, I was way behind. I had a few piddly little points. I bided my time, got the right combination, won the game, and was not impressed. So... I won this game that took too long. <laughs> yeah. Because normally in a game, I like the fact that one person cannot get so far ahead that you can't be caught. That will not happen in this game. But basically everybody else... It's one of these games where everybody else joins in to bludgeon the leader and nobody wins for a long time. And that's the one, of the, one of the challenges with this game is because they do have so many different abilities that can kind of take away. 
So you're gonna, you use a traitor, and you can kind of switch cards, which kind of reduces someone's ability. Use assassin to destroy someone else's cards. So, and that's what you have to do in this game, right? It is attack the leaders, yeah. because if you're able to get enough for your guild, and you can flip them over, and you can buy the victory points, that's the game. There really isn't much more to it. So pick the cards, play the cards, do the actions, buy the victory points. So there's not a lot of length as far as, like, I'm slowly whittling you down. It's like, I'm attacking you straight out, man. Yeah. Yeah. And it's... There's a cool couple of cool things you can do. Like, the farmer lets you kind of chip away at victory points. You only need 20 to win. Um, the cards you can buy are anywhere between 2 and 9. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. The lower point ones have special abilities, so maybe you get extra actions or we get to steal stuff from people. The higher ones, you actually need two completed chapters to buy. So, like, you'll need to finish two sets to buy a 9. But 9 gets you halfway to winning. So it's... It's worth it, um, but then you know the, the the farmers which give you that can be stolen from you so easily. And they uh, are. everything can be stolen constantly. I know. And I got to throw this in here too. The theme, folks, is just pasted on. Um, this could be a tribe of primates in the jungle, <laughs> you know, <laughs> fighting for supremacy for for all that matters. Um, so that didn't impress me either. I don't know if it's totally pasted on. I mean, the abilities are thematic. Farmer. The dancer. Getting gold. When, when does a farmer ever get rich enough to get gold? Well, he sells his stuff. It's not gold. It's victory points. Victory points. So, because that's all he does. I'm farming. This is how I live my life. <laughs> Just chugging along. I guess I'm thinking of, like, the along. assassin and the traitor, which are... Yeah. And the historian's able to go in the discard pile. So yeah. it is at least at least the roles are thematic. But I do agree with what you're saying, Drew, as far as for me the 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 overall overall theme as far as artwork and the setting. Eh, I I mean, I would have liked to seen something more dynamic. Just because I mean the roles do fit, mm-hmm. but it's like, oh yes, boring, you know, medieval art. Oh, more boring and medieval art. Ah, yes, additional boring medieval art. And the problem with the game is, is that, you know, the whole game is the sets of cards, and you're getting duplicates of every card other than the fact that they're different colors. So you're looking at the same piece of artwork that's kind of boring multiple times in front of you. So you're creating all these different sets, and you're like, huh. I mean, I, I would have loved to seen some beautiful Renaissance artwork, or sci-fi theme, or or mm. fantasy theme that was more evocative. Because it's just this very, very, very boring, flat, dry artwork. The graphic design is nice. I mean, it, it's nicely laid out with the iconography, so you understand what you're doing. But honestly, even that's kind of boring. Yeah. Well, it was, sometimes it's hard to understand because. <laughs> The, the the size of the bonuses that you get depends on how many of a particular role that you have. And sometimes it's hard to figure out, what does this mean again? What am I trying to do? What am I trying to accomplish? Historians. and So the iconography isn't always clear. The the point you say about um, the, the graphic design, it gets worse because most of the cards you have in your hand are cards you can't use. So you're staring at them, realizing these are worthless cards, and they're not very pretty, too. Yeah. Well... I mean, the game plays nice. I liked playing the game. I would play this game again. It has an expansion job fair, which is more of the same with less attacking cards. I think they realized from the first release it did take too long because if you are a wise gamer, you're keeping one eye on your guild and one eye on someone else's guild. 
it plays better with smaller numbers of people than I can imagine. The larger the number, the more challenging because you're just kind of chipping away at each other throughout the whole game. Yeah. So, if they would retheme this in a fantasy or a sci-fi type of way, I think it would be more dynamic. But beyond that, it's just kind of an average middle-of-the-road game. It's good. I'd play it, but I wouldn't go out of my way to play it. So for me, it's a play. Ditto. Yeah, it's, I I had fun with it, but I felt it played too long. It's a little generic, a little bland. There's too much attacking. Uh, it reminded remind me a little bit of that game we played with you, Daniel, the uh, Don't Turkey My Mayo. Yeah. You know what it was? Or people just kept stealing each other's stuff, and then somebody suddenly won. <laughs> so... Somebody, I'm, going, I'm sorry, Jeff. I'm going to invent a new category. Wait. Wait. Uh, <laughs> I did. You're, I invented like trade. Our exactly. <laughs> you need a bigger vocabulary. You said the, there's already an expansion. Yes. yes. It's available. It is. Print? Okay. So I'm going to have to get and that. It's more of the same. Well, you said it's less attacking. Less so attacking. maybe it rebalances the game. That's what I would. See, that's what I would need to see um, before I would want to play this again is less focus on attacking and more on combinations of cards. I love combinations, and this has the potential for good combinations. Yeah, but... set, set collection and action playing is great. Yeah, I want to see more. Yeah. Daniel, what do you think after our stellar review of this? Uh, honestly, I, th- I think I'd like to give it a shot, give it a play. Um, but, you know, I haven't had a chance to, to play it at all yet, so mine is just an expression of interest. Uh, I, I do kind of find the the crabs in the pot problem to be an issue where everyone's just pulling each other down. That gets frustrating. But I'd still like to give it a shot and see exactly how frustrating. Yeah. yeah for me, I like, like Turkey My Mayo a lot. Yeah, and it's... I mean, it's not the exact same game, but it kind of reminded me of it. I, I liked this one better. Um, I would have liked, you know, when you flip over your cards so you're going to buy victory points the fact once they're flipped over i understand that now you can't use that special ability which limits you but it's almost like i have this thing it's just sitting there and i can just make another one just sit there so it's a little bit you needed to have some way to attack that or remove that from another player because yeah. it's i don't know yeah or maybe like they take up a slot something um, like that yeah exactly because you, you can only have three completed chapters at a time but if you have three completed chapters you're probably going to win yeah, and you only need two to get the big bonus nine. Yeah. So what's the point? Yeah. And you really, if you, a little strategy for the game, don't flip those over so quickly. You really want to have a lot out there so you can kind of chain your actions together. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. And then one last thing on this game. It does cost 30 bucks. It comes in a slightly too large box. It's 120 cards and some victory point tokens. That's all that's in the box. Um, could have come in a small card box for 20 and that would have been a reasonable price for me. Uh, would have been a better game, actually. Yeah, I think so. You know, and the answer is not bad. It has it's wide enough that if you sleeve the cards, they'll fit. But I don't think you need it. I just I don't think it needs to be there. So something to throw out there. Okay. Um, but overall, I think it's a general play, but not a hyper impressed play sure. for most of us. Well, this week at the table, I got concept out there. Now we were talking about the Spiel des Jahres. One of the the nominees was concept. Now, in one. <laughs> To explain concept, I would need a bunch of pictures. And obviously, with an audio podcast, that's going to be a little bit challenging. But, kind of in one shot, concept is charades for introverts. It's a good example. Yeah, that works. Yeah. Right. yeah. So, I, I don't really have to say much more than that. If you've ever played charades where you get a clue as far as something you have to either a person, a place, a thing, or a concept, and you're supposed to get up and throw your arms and jump up and down and make a fool out of yourself to get other people to guess the clue. If you like 
the jumping up and down and the acting and the the signaling, you should play charades. If you're like me and you're like, yeah, I really don't want to do that, um, you should play concept. And because concept is a very simplistic game, you get this big whiteboard and it has a number of different smaller pictures on it, which tries to incorporate every possible type of concept or shape, symbol, situation you could possibly want to communicate. You get these plastic um, markers. One is a question mark, which is which denotes that this is your main concept, and it's green, and you put that down somewhere. And then you get these little cubes that you'll place on other different pictures in order to show that the concept is connected to a larger thing. So if you were trying to communicate... I think one of the examples in the book is Leonardo DiCaprio. So what you would do is you take the question mark and you place that down on actor. So there's a little box which shows entertainers. Then you would take the little green cubes and you put one down as male. So if someone says that, well, I think it's a, it's a male entertainer. Now you take one of the exclamation points, let's say the red one, and you put it with ships. So you have ships and boats and things. Okay, so it's a ship and boat. Okay, great, I get that. Then you take another red color cube because it matches the ship area and you put it where it shows a symbol of something going down then you take another red cube or you take a bunch of red cubes and you throw them down on the skull where it shows kind of like a death concept oh so that ship is going down and a lot of people died and it's a male actor it's got to be leonardo dicaprio from titanic so that's how you would kind of communicate that concept now, what we found, at least what I found playing the game, is the more people, the better, just like how Charades plays. Because the fewer the people, and even though this game is supposed to play with a few number of people, it's kind of challenging. Finally, as far as my little review goes, it has a scoring mechanic to it, where there's these double light bulbs and single light bulbs, and if you, and if you have enough light bulbs are given out in the game, the game ends. The game itself recommends not playing by those <laughs> rules, and I recommend doing so because it's kind of pointless to play by points when you're playing a Shrey game. Just enjoy it. Have fun. I enjoyed playing it again. I would play it again. It wouldn't be a buy for me. It's just a little too generic, and it, it depends 100% on the people you're playing with. The game itself doesn't really offer you anything above and beyond that, so if you have a great group of friends that are maybe inside great actors or great communicators but don't like to jump up and down concept is for you but if you like the jumping up and down play charades if you don't like this concept of concept whatsoever <laughs> skip it completely yeah i i really liked concept because so we played it together right and um i agree it's you know it's a party game at core so it's meant for a large group of people and don't keep score um that just seems to ruin the fun of it uh at the right price point, I'd actually buy it. I think about if I could find it for $25, maybe up to 30 I think it might be a worthwhile buy. There are some price points online that approach that. Um, yeah, I think that's about the base base price for about 30, 30 bucks or so. Yeah. So for me, it's, uh, it's a buy. Okay. Um, I don't like charades. <laughs> Just throwing that out there. Um concept itself it is you know it's visual charade it's you know paper charades it's not a game to me so much as an activity and you take the points out it's really not a game the lack of any mechanics for time or guest counts or anything like that 
Like, I mean, you obviously can, you know, house rule that and say, okay, you only have two minutes. Um, but it's not in the box. So it's just people yelling at somebody for as long as it takes to figure <laughs> it out. And then you give them the points. And that's fun until it's been 10 minutes and the person putting out clues is just like picking it up and putting it down for emphasis. Like, no, it's this. Like, nobody's getting it. It's not working. That's, I don't know. And that's charades. It is really frustrating. That's yeah. why I don't like charades. Nobody gets it. <laughs> Stop giving me that clue. <laughs> it's a bad clue or a really tough one. I don't know whose fault it is, but just call it. Game. Done. Uh, there's got to be a timer. There's got to be something in there or, like, number of guesses, you know, like 20 questions. I don't know. I don't know. I just... But I love the fact that in concept, the the clues constantly evolved, constantly changed. Yeah, that's the strength of it. Is you can't do that with um, charades easily. True. Yeah. I mean, it... because everyone's stuck on their original guess. Yeah. Is they see somebody makes a gesture, they guess it, and then that, mentally it's here. Where with the board in concept, you're moving the clue pieces around, and you're constantly having to reformulate. Your mental image of it. Yeah. Where someone's like, water. You're like, no, no, that's not why I did water. I meant it was being wet. <laughs> you know. Uh, different yeah, different representations. For me, this is a buy if you're a family. I mean, Atlantic Monthly did this article about games makes your kids better students. This is the kind of game that does. Mm. Um, it, it teaches your kid how to think, um, I think. It's flawed, yeah. But you have to stick with the game because there's a steep learning curve. You have to really grasp what these icons are representing. But if a family plays this enough times, you're going to pick that up. You're going to get to know each other really well. There's also the accessibility issue. This is a great game for people who physically don't play charades, for people who don't who aren't able to verbalize um, in charades, maybe people whose language skills are not very strong. It's a great accessibility game and a great game for families. Or, you know, language independent, so... Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. I think it's really smart, the way they put it together. Um, So, like, my review is not... It's a personal dodge, because I don't enjoy this type of game, but I think it's... What they created was... It's admirable, and I think it's useful for a lot of people, and I think a lot of people could enjoy it. It's charades for for introverts, and if that's something you want to do, this is the game for you. (laughs) That's it. Yeah, yeah. All right, so uh, next up on the list here, Steam Park. We got to play this with Drew. Showed us the rules. Steam Park. It is not steampunk, but the name is deliberate. They want you to think that. It's it's a pasted-on theme, steampunk, of a, of a basic roll the dice, choose your actions from the dice, and build the biggest amusement park that you can, basically. Um, and I love that function about the dice. You have six dice with different icons on each side. One of those is actually blank. And all the players roll the dice over and over and over again until you're happy with the actions that the dice have given you. And then you stop. And you you pick a uh, token from the middle that says what player you are. So the first person who's happy with their dice gets the first token. The last person to choose actually gets to roll their dice a few more times to get a better selection. So... uh, But on the other hand, the person who finishes first has bonuses that the person who finishes last doesn't get. That's important. I like that because then you choose how you want to play your turn. You have six actions. I'm not going to get into all of those. But basically in an amusement park, it's either build a ride, build a booth that supports the rides, bring in visitors, clean up, just the, the sort of different things that you would want to do in an amusement park. The whole point of it is you have a 4x4 four four disc, everybody has, 
or disc. You can only have four by four discs. <laughs> it's a square. So you start with these four by four cards that you're building the three three dimensional rides on. And the tough part is you can't build a ride next to another ride unless it's of the same color. There are how many eight colors in this game? I think there are a lot of different colors. There are six colors. Okay, there are a lot of colors. We'll leave it at that. There's colors, man. The colors. So it's it's not just a matter of building rides, but but strategically choosing the right colors. You only have a one space, a two space, and a three space ride of each color. And once that's taken, you're you're out of luck. You're trying to fit as much as you can into a small space. You can expand. One of the dice options is expanding it. Um, I found I think when we played it, we expanded far more than we needed to. <laughs> It's yeah. Um, it's a quick game. That's the thing. There's only I think how many rounds? There's six. Six rounds, and it goes by very quickly. You're rolling the dice. You're doing your actions. Done. Very fast. So uh, the other mechanic is once you choose to build rides, then you have to bring people in because you're not going to score anything unless you have rides, you have visitors, and a clean park. You also collect dirt, because the more construction you do and the more visitors you have, the more dirt you collect. So one of the jobs you have to do with your dice actions is clean up the dirt. The more dirt you have, the more points are deducted at the end of the game, and it grows exponentially. So it's not one for one. You have five dirt, it could be ten points you're losing. Ten dirt, you could be losing twenty points. So it's really important to keep it clean. It's got that green aspect. That's cool. There's a, a big random element. I didn't mind that so much. Uh, because with the support booths, you were able to use those different colors in different ways. Um, what I liked about it was it went by very quickly. And I didn't get to do whatever I wanted, but nobody did in that game. <laughs> it was just a matter of making the most of it. You had bonus cards um, that gave you extra points, sure. Um, the tendency would be to play to the bonus cards instead of try to build your park. But I don't think that happened too much. That wasn't too bad. It's just like a little extra way of getting a few extra points. Yeah, I like this game a lot. It's by ILO, so it had this very whimsical kind of... I wouldn't say, as Drew was saying, I wouldn't call this like a steampunk game. To say it's steampark, you might get that vision in your head like, oh, there's going to be all these gears. It's good. It's more of this kind of French, artistic, kind of independent, very imaginative, like a child's imagination an Amelie kind of, you know, movie. <laughs> if she, if, if, if there was a park in Amelie, it would be this park. So, you know, I like this game because it has a lot of really interesting mechanics that are just touched upon, but are never really heavy-handed. So you have that early Yahtzee mechanic where you're trying to roll the dice to get what you want, hopefully. It has that um, Galaxy Trucker type of mechanic where whoever rolls the dice, you get those different bonuses depending on who completes first you build the park. So you get this kind of really bland kind of square landscape and then you get to pick which rides you put in your park and then as you if you roll the people that come to your park, if they match the color of the rides, you score points unless you have a booth that gives you an ability to score points even if they don't match. So you get to build this really creative little colored park. I like a lot of those different things. The dirt mechanic is a different type of mechanic. It's not a negative mechanic. You just have to clean up the dirt, which makes sense. Well, it's negative in that it could hurt you if you yeah, didn't clean it up. But it's not a, it's not an attacking mechanic. It's right. not something that's like 
oh, you lost visitors, they hate your park or something. It just They just create dirt. Okay, I'll clean up the dirt, and you can cr- you can clean up the dirt with the dyes. You can clean, clean up dirt with getting one of those kind of early markers if you complete it quickly. So it's fun in that way. The bonus cards are nice. Like you said, sometimes you might want to go for those bonus cards. So there's always opportunities to clean up dirt. There's always opportunities to score money, which helps at the end of the game. It's just maybe just a little light for myself as a gamer. This is probably something for a younger gamer. Maybe somebody who is, I don't know, 10 to 15, you know, as far as the mechanics aren't so hard. You roll your dice, you see what you get, you make your movements, you make your actions, and that's pretty much it. So it's definitely, I think, a a family game. You know, you could play this with a family, and it, it definitely has that theme. But for a light game, you want it quick. It's a light game. It, it, I, I like it. it. I mean, it's a play, and it could be a buy. I could see adding this to the collection. I'm not sure how much this goes for, but if it's something fairly inexpensive, I could see picking this up. But it doesn't have the weight for me to want to play this multiple times. Yeah. I had, I don't know, it was a weird reaction. Like, as we were playing it, I was not having fun. Um, so I had to think about it afterwards. Like, what did I not like about this game? It's the galaxy trucker style mechanic and i know why it's there it's to avoid ap and also to you know incentivize hurrying up like if everybody got to roll their dice as much as they wanted it'd be very uh solitaire they could have um, done a yahtzee mechanic there and just stop like it. a certain number of rolls right yeah like it does keep the game short and i do like that the game played very quickly like a little under what they said on the box and it was our first at least my first playthrough mm-hmm. um but at the same time, because you're rushing and there's such a big swing between going first and going last, it's like a six dirt swing. Uh, you want to hurry up, and then multiple times throughout the game, you have like you don't have time to figure out what you need, and then you screw it up. And so then you constantly have these actions you can't perform, and it's just there's a lot of wasted actions in the game, unless you already have it all planned out what you want to do for like four rounds. I mean. The- well, the dice, because the actions all come off the dice. Yeah. So there are dice that you just didn't use because... Or you just didn't think it, like, you're like, oh, crud, I did the math wrong because I had to do it really, really fast. Um, yeah. I don't like that. And well, that's that's a personal preference. I just don't like games that force you to hurry up. The stress. On the strategy end of things. Sure. Like, at the same time, I don't like games that didn't cause AP and then everybody's sitting there waiting for the one guy to figure his stuff out for 10 minutes. That's annoying, too. So I think on that end, it's nice. It was quick. Um... Like, I didn't, I wasn't miserable. If it had been a two hour game, I would have been uh, because it kept it short. It was fine. And I didn't even do super poorly. I think, it, you know, we all were around the same points in the end on this, sure. on the playthrough. It's just that mechanic combined with the dirt, which basically makes it so you can't do anything substantial in the last round. Because if you build a bunch of stuff in the last round, then you get a bunch of dirt and you mm-hmm. lose a ton of points. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't, I don't know. It just didn't, it didn't come together for me tightly it just felt like this kind of a lot of different things a lot of stuff scattered around and you're just kind of pulling it together and hope you get the right stuff or hope you thought right ahead it felt a little messy so i would i'm gonna give it a dodge yeah there's no strategy to it it's just like i said hurry 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 there can be a strategy if you have it thought out or if you think fast enough i just well you can you can build towards the bonus cards which gives you money which is great you can build as far as I need to have a certain number of boots in order to give me certain powers. Like what there was one of those boots that actually changes one of your die faces. So you could have done that a little yeah. bit. But basically you're building the rides. 
once you have one or two rides up, you should try to roll for people, you know, to come to your park. Hopefully you'll pull the right colored people to match with the same colored ride, score those points, you know, build, recruit people, build, recruit people. I mean, that's, it's a little short, so there isn't any, you know, any kind of really big snowballing. I think I only got three rides up by the end of the game. Yeah. So. But you you described what I wanted to, to say perfectly. You just didn't use the C word that I always like, combinations. Okay. Um you can do some great combinations with the dice depending on what order you you use your actions in, and that's one of the nice things about it. The dice are in whatever whatever order you want, including uh, flipping one of the dice if you want to use the power of your booth, um, and that can maximize your score. So that's that's one of the more interesting things about it. Combinations. I like this game. I like I said, it's a play for me. It could be a buy if the price was right on that. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a dodge for me. It could be. I'd play it again. I will play it again because I, I want to, now that I know what all the actions are and what kind of the flow should be round to round, I want to see if it plays differently. I, my, the one downside about the game is, and I don't and I don't know where it is. I mean, it's a good game. It, it's got the right stuff. It's just, I, obviously, I'd like to have something with a little more depth, maybe something played a little bit longer so you could build a more expansive park. But the rides, the the artwork on the rides is fine. It's, it's nice. I like it. I would have liked to have seen something more either thematic to fit a certain universe or rides that actually look like a little bit more like actual rides so like hey it's a ferris wheel that's really cool i know what that is <laughs> oh but instead it's like hey it's a green thing with tentacles coming out of it and purple circles i just don't let know you know these are is. all basically um like roller coaster looking rides they're three-dimensional you have to put them together little bits of cardboard so they're they're pretty sturdy stock it requires some work assembly before you start and yeah, they're but you actually pasted on theme. But it's nice but <laughs> as it's, far as that goes. Yeah, well, I mean, you are getting to put actual three dimensional type of things on your park. Yeah, but the steampunk aspect of it—it's not steampunk. You know, it's it's no. could it's, have been a normal amusement park. It didn't have to be like it looks. It's pretty, but like the whole idea of robots, and there's no reason there needs to be robots. And I'm saying um, <laughs> you always have to have robots, no Anthony. Robots. There's always a reason for robots. <laughs> and one company online is offering it for $35, so that's not too bad. Just so you know. All right, uh, Daniel, what do you think? You didn't get a chance to play with us, but what would you? Something you want to try? Uh, yeah, I'd give it a shot. Uh, it doesn't sound so exciting that I'm going to seek it out, but if someone put it down on the table, I'm not going to run away. All right. Maybe when you get back, we'll get this to the table again. I could try it again. You can give it a first shot. We'll see what we all think. Sounds good to me. All right, cool. Uh, one more game on this list here from you, Daniel. Um, Flashpoint, right? Yeah. You know, so since I'm out of town, I've been playing with uh, a different group than usual. But uh, I picked up Flashpoint on sale at the Barnes & Noble's clearance. And it's a game I've played before and I really liked. Uh, and I'm glad that I got to play through it again because I really liked it again. Um I've played with some less experienced players, and the rules are very simple and the environment very engaging. So after one round through play, everyone knew what they were doing, what they could do, what they should do, and what it meant when things started happening. Now, for those of you not familiar with Flashpoint, which I'm, it's probably a minority of you, but uh, is a cooperative game by Kevin Lansing, and you play as firefighters rescuing people from a burning building. There are various complications that arise, like uh, places where you thought people were end up being empty, so you wasted your time punching through a wall in a burning building, and the fire got all that much worse. And the fire 
continues to burn in these radically unpredictable ways and eventually can threaten the structure itself, at which point you will lose if the building collapses. Play is very simple, at least on the most basic mode of play, and there are more complicated rules that you can slowly scale up to, which is really nice for those of you who have new gamers or younger gamers that you want to bring into the fold. Uh, on top of that, it's a cooperative game, which is also very nice for new gamers and younger gamers because it takes out that element of, I've played this game a hundred times before, you mortals, fear me, fear me, and makes your experience an asset to the other players and an asset to their enjoyment. Um, one thing that deserves special mention, as anyone who's played this game will know, is the art. So the artists uh, Luis Francisco and George Pastoras did amazing character art on the cards that the, the roll cards, the character roll cards. Uh, it's just absolutely stunning. Uh, and another notable fact is about half of the characters are females and they are wearing full reasonable clothing as they go into a burning <laughs> building, uh, which is, you know, a noteworthy feature. That's not something you always see in modern board games. But. Now, Daniel, yeah. um, you, you had the opportunity to play this with people who don't play board games a lot. I think that's a great audience to introduce this to. Um, look, comparing it to another gateway game, Pandemic, um, if you had to introduce games to somebody, which would you choose between Pandemic or, or Flashpoint to be their first game? You know, I'm, I'm probably going to go with Flashpoint. I think Flashpoint is... Huh. Actually, it's kind of hard to say why I'd go with Flashpoint. I think one thing that's nice is Flashpoint has simpler rules you can start with. Ah, it, okay. it, in the rulebook, it makes considerations for the new gamer and for the, the, the learning game, right, where you learn basic mechanics, and then you can add these more elaborate mechanics on top of it. I also think Flashpoint is more flexible in some ways than Pandemic, right? There's both a lot of wonderful expansions to it that I know Pandemic has as well, uh, but I think they add more variety for Flashpoint, but that's just a subjective feeling, and I can't really quantify that. How about, well, roles, I think, one of the ways, because sometimes in Pandemic, uh, new players don't understand the roles and how they can use them. They, they pick up on the roles in Flashpoint pretty quickly? Yeah, I think everyone understood what they could do by the end of their first turn and understood what sort of things they were good at by the end of their first turn. So we had one pl new player playing the paramedic who's great at healing people, which makes them easier to get out of the room but is terrible at extinguishing fires. Uh, right, another person who was good at extinguishing fires but didn't get as much movement as the rest of us. Um, so we all figured out our role pretty quick. All right. Yeah, this um, is a good it's one. It's prettier. There's, I don't know. It's very dynamic. The art's beautiful. There's these uh, little fireman tokens which move around, which are great. Um, I think it's just very engaging. Yeah, man, I, I think... Like you're saying, it's a better game for uh, you know teaching new people. I totally see that because it scales in difficulty really well. Mm. Um, Pandemic has you know an easier and a harder mode, and then expansions. But Flashpoint, there's like multiple steps. You could play Bare Bones Vanilla, which I, I think the first time I played we did, and it was just put out the fire, don't die. That's it. <laughs> save save X people, don't die. Um, then you add the rules. Then you add additional you know factors outside the board then there's the expansions that you can throw in um there's even more expansions chris was talking about with the kickstarter so like they keep building on the game but like incrementally you know yeah. which pandemic does too but like there are these big box expansions which are m a little more than incremental improvements sure. on the game a bit of the challenge with this game is that it can get a little bit repetitive as far as 
you know, you're rolling the dice to see where the survivors are in the situation, but there are always the ideal paths to kind of get into the, the location. So for that, it's a little kind of repetitive, but you never know if that token with the question mark on it is actually a survivor or nothing there at all. So it adds a little bit of randomness. What I like about the game is it's very visceral. You can see what's going on. You can see the fire tokens happening. You can see the walls that you're knocking down. The little plastic figures are really nice to play with them in the game. The individual characters do have special abilities that do make sense. And as Daniel was saying, they do have downsides. So if you do have someone who could take out fires really great, they're not great at rescuing. Hmm. So especially for new players, this really is a great co-op game and kind of like the co-op game to keep returning back to as far as what are you going to play as far as a co-op with family or friends or new gamers. But they're producing so many different maps and so many different Mm -hmm. special ability characters that you will keep coming back to this game again and again. This is really a nice game where you can put down a table, everyone's going to enjoy this, whether they're a new player, whether they're family, friends, even kids, you can kind of walk through this game with as well because it's not that hard to understand that the token you need to get to is five spaces away, whereas Pandemic, you have to go, well, you know, this card might come up and cause an epidemic, which will spawn this, and like, oh, no, too much math. No, that's really <laughs> hurting my head. Like, I want to know which spaces to go. And this game doesn't really have that alpha gamer problem to it. No. Hmm. Because you can do whatever you want. You'll talk a little bit. You'll you'll get a you'll devise a plan, but your special abilities are really key for you. And it's not like you do this and you do this and I do this. It's like I think we should save that person. All right, let's go save that person, and you'll take your actions. Hey Daniel, did you did your group lose any uh, people? Oh when you yeah. How, <laughs> how how did they respond? How did they? Uh- they were fully engaged. We were pushing harder and harder to try to get everyone out, right? So sometimes you'll lose a victim to fire expanding or what have you. And uh, I think one time we had the the sort of nightmare situation where a firefighter was carrying someone out and there was an explosion which knocked the firefighter down and uh, covered the space that the victim was in in fire. So they had them on their shoulders, you know, almost out the door and lost them. Uh, so they, they they really got into the, the reality of it, that these are human beings that they're trying to, to rescue. Yeah, it's it's a remarkably theatrical game, and it's a, a remarkably uh, thematic game, right? You really get involved. Um, and I think that might be part of that is because the rules kind of stay out of your way, especially on the simpler modes, right? It's just it flows so smoothly, uh, and you don't have to have all this forward prediction, and the, the board just sort of expands organically. Uh, and then part of it is, I mean, it's it's an easy thing to see in your head, right? You see the firefighters pushing through smoke and fire, not sure what's inside of the building sometimes, right? Uh, in the more advanced modes, you get hazmat markers where, you know, you stumble across somebody's propane tank or, you know, you stumble across a septic tank, I guess. I don't know what else would be. Oh, cleaning chemicals, that sort of thing. And that's just a nightmare situation, right? You're in a building that's on fire, and right in front of you is an explosive. Um, and it, it makes for very engaging gameplay. All right. Yeah, that's, this is a good one. Um, and we did, you know, if you want to hear a little bit more about it, we did talk about it on episode 17 uh, with that first batch of expansions that came out. Uh, kind of more of an in-depth on the, the actual 
play and what the difference is between the base and the expansions. But it's always nice to hear about games and how they relate to different audiences. Sure. Uh, especially using it to people who don't play games that, that often. It's good to know because we want to spread the word <laughs> on yeah. games like this. And I will bring up, I, I played this game with someone, uh, one of the people I played this game with, I played Pandemic with as well, and I think they got more engaged in this one than they did in Pandemic. Uh, I think, again, that's because it's it's simpler. It's easier to get your, your teeth into. Sure. Um, yeah. Cool. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a play bordering on buy for me. I haven't bought it yet. Uh, but this is actually one of the few games my wife has played and enjoyed. Uh, she wow. played it one of the times, cool. had some friends over, and uh, I think we would play it again. Definitely. It's a buy plus, because I'm adding another category to this. Buy plus. <laughs> Drew, because... Drew. <laughs> Drew, come on. We've got to make a chart. <laughs> yes. They're, they're expansions. It's the kind of game where it does improve with expansions, gives you more options, more uh, it expands your world. It's a buy for me. I picked this game up on sale at Barnes & Noble. Thank you, Barnes & Noble. And it was a game that just by having it on sale and you get that base game down, you do want to pick up all the expansions. The artwork is beautiful. The iconography is understandable. The graphic the design is nice. And as, as Daniel said, when a game plays well thematically, you can leave the rule book behind. And I think that's the great thing about Flashpoint Fire Rescue is that you can just put this game out and it makes sense without even having looking at the, at the rule book. Oh, I'm not going to wall down. That's going to cause damage. Let me take the damage markers. You know, I'm going to move three spaces and take this out. Oh, it's smoke. If it if it gets you know more fire, it's going to turn to fire itself. Okay, this makes a lot of sense. Great game. Yeah, uh, this is definitely a buy for me. I mean, I, I bought it. I would buy it again. If I were to lose it in a fire, I would buy it again. <laughs> the first ones I replace. Great. Now I got Daniel making up new ratings too. <laughs> um, the thematic ratings. <laughs> it's, you, yeah. you would rate this as replace. Yeah, right. buy, so replace, if you lost it, you'd replace upgrade, it. Modify. I'm, I'm definitely going to get on that Kickstarter that you were talking about earlier, Chris, and that you, you talked about on that most recent episode of Kicking the Habit. Uh, so, yeah, it's amazing game. It's, it's a mainstay, I think. It should be in everyone's collection. On that Kickstarter, do they have a tier where you can get like the base stuff? No. This, uh, is, this is, honestly, this is just a flat... Pick it up the expansion through Kickstarter or pick it up at Essence. You know, this is just kind of like a pre-order. Okay, that's. I mean, that's fine. It makes sense. But I really think anytime they kickstart an expansion, they should have an option to buy the base. Well, with maybe it. they should talk to Queen Games where they can buy right everything. Queen does it right. I would do that. I mean, if they launched new stuff on there, I would do that. Yes, they're selling stuff you can buy. Whatever. <laughs> all right, so that's all the stuff we've been playing this last week, except for one game that we're going to talk about next in our feature review: Russian Railroad. And now for the feature review. All right, so this episode, our feature review is Russian Railroads. Uh, I picked this up about a couple months ago. It was on sale somewhere. Um, recently, it's been getting a lot of attention, picked up some awards, including Dice Tower's Strategy Game Award. Uh, so I wanted to get it to the table and see what all the hubbub was about, why everybody thought this was such a great strategy game, and uh, see how much trains were actually involved. Uh, so the basic premise of the game, and there are trains, and there are engineers and factories, but it's it's a Euro, it's a worker placement game, and uh, most of the game is thematically light. Uh, 
there's a lot of fun artwork. There's a lot of interesting things on the board here, but it's, in terms of theme, it's don't expect, you know, Railways of the World or even Ticket to Ride in terms of a train game. But as far as a worker placement game goes, it's very deep. has a lot of good options in it. So basically what you're going to have, you're going to have your own player board. Um, on that player board are three railways and a factory track. And on each turn, you're going to take... You're going to take turns with other players, placing your workers on various spaces on the, the master board, the main board, um, of which there are quite a few. So you start the game with uh, either six workers if you're playing with two people, or five workers if you're playing with three or four. And the there's actually a two-player side to the board, too, which is very interesting, I think, for a worker placement game, that it cuts off some of the spaces, then um, it changes some of the... Uh, like the length of the game changes. There's a few changes if you play two-player, which I think work pretty well in terms of balance. Um, but overall, the, the core mechanic of the game is building up the rails on each of those tracks. The rails are done in different colors. Um, it's supposed to symbolize like laying down the ground and then the rails and then the wood tracks and then I think uh, like the lighting. There's there's six of them overall, or five of them overall, um, but you can't use the next level up until you unlock it by moving up the last one. So your first track is a black track. You can't unlock the silver one, the gray one, until you reach that point on the track. So a certain number of actions have to be taken until you get to the next level. Um, and that's for the three tracks themselves. The factory track is a completely separate track where you're moving a different token, um, but you can't get to the end of that until you buy the factories. Buying factories is an action that you either buy a train or a factory, and then the trains are necessary for the tracks. So I'm not going to go into all the rules here, but you can tell that there's a lot of but this, if then this kind of things going on. You have a lot of options. You can't do all of them. Uh, as you build up your strategy in the game, you kind of have to go down one route or another. Uh, every game I've played, usually of the four or five basic options on the board, uh, I'll focus all of my energy into two of them, and maybe like a halfway on another one. And it seems like most people do the same thing, because you can't you can't get all four <laughs> of them to the end of the track. It's impossible. You're just not going to do it. So you want to make sure that you do something that's going to maximize your points in one area, but at the same time have other options because it's a worker placement game. So if someone takes that position on the board, um, say the option to buy a train and you need a train, you need something else you can do on that turn. You never want to get to the point where you can't take an action because the, your strategy has been blocked out by somebody else. Mm -hmm. um, a couple other things that go on here. There are engineers you can buy. These basically let you... Uh, Take your, it's, it's a new action space that you place in front of you. Nobody else can take it. Uh, the player with the most engineers gets extra points at the end of the game. There are, there's also usually an open engineer on the board. The actual player order is very interesting. Uh, you can get points the lower in the player order you go, and you also get bonuses. So if you go fourth in a four-player game, you get four points at the end of that round, but you also get to choose at the beginning of the round like a special bonus action. So like you get a free coin or a free uh, multiplier token. Um, like little things, but they add up if you want to keep going last. But of course, it's worker placement, so you don't get to choose first. <laughs> Someone else might take the thing you very much need. So there are two spaces on the board, too, where you can put yourself in first or second place um, in terms of who goes in the next round. Very much like you know, Lords of Waterdeep has that option where you can 
say you're going to go first. A few other things going on here. There are bonus tokens that you can unlock on the board. Um, these are extremely powerful. I don't see why anybody would not do it, uh, at least for the first one, just because just the sheer power of what you get from those. Uh, there are end bonus cards that are also equally powerful, and you both of these you get to pick what you want from the pile, so you can kind of build your strategy around what you want to get. Uh, there are ways to unlock new workers. There are bonus actions, um, like you can buy extra workers or extra coins. In this case, they're called rubles. The rubles can be used at workers at any point, and there aren't a lot of places on the board where you're going to use money, so generally it's recommended that you spend all the money you get except for one <laughs> unless you want to buy an engineer uh because they're interchangeable with workers it's very hard to get it but you don't need it to buy anything so again i'm not covering every possible rule in this game because it's it's a very there's a lot going on like if you open the rule book page two and three where it has the component list and kind of a map of everything it's just it's going to explode and you're like <laughs> there's so much going on there um but once you get the flow of it, it all flows very smoothly. Um, you can play an entire game ignoring one or two mechanics even and just kind of focus on one thing, so there's different ways to play. The scoring is a little ridiculous if you don't like those three 400-point games. <laughs> Drew. Uh, I, I think in the two-player game, we hit almost 300, and that's with one fewer round. And it does, it snowballs like crazy. So like the first round, you're going to score like eight points. The second round, maybe 15. Uh, by the fifth round, you're scoring 100 points. At least. At least, yeah. yeah. And that final round in a three, four player game, you're probably going to pull out, you know, 150, 200 points. It's, the numbers are really up there, but it feels really good because you're building up to that. <laughs> like you're building your own little engine. And most of the points carry over from round to round. So you get, you know, if you get your a train up to a 9 or a 10, or a 9 on the space, um, on one of the tracks, you're going to get all those points every round after which you do that, which to me is pretty cool. So that's the the basics of Russian Railroads. Uh, let's talk about what we thought of it, and then uh, overall, you know, the feel of the game, and if we feel like it deserved that Strategy Game of the Year award. Well, Anthony, do you find that, that there are certain actions that, that players gravitate toward? Like, is there one or two actions that everybody wants but only one person can get yes very much so um the two no-brainer actions i in my opinion if when they're available are the two coins because you're spending one worker to get two hmm. basically it's it's just a no-brainer there's basically two of those actions on the three four player board because there's another one that gives you two blue workers uh which are temporary workers for the one turn uh, another one that's a no-brainer early in the game is buying the engineer it's 40 points at the end of the game if you have the most engineers. Uh, in a four-player game, you could probably get away with buying two, and at the bare minimum, you're going to get 20 points because second place gets second 20. Place. And then you can also go and take the first player, second player space. Because those are like water deep harbor and that you get to then move the worker. Like if you take the first player marker, you get to go first next, and you get to replace that worker somewhere else. Mm. So... Everything else really depends on what you need. Um, the train space, I feel like, was very popular. People often want to upgrade their trains, but here's the kicker with the trains. The, they're all laid out on the board from 2 to 9. You can only buy the lowest number available. So if you go first buying a train, you only get a 2. Hmm. You wait for everybody else to go, you might get a 3. 
and that's right. and that train you can flip it over to make a factory, but then it's still only a two or three level factory. But that's one way of but that's one way of burning through trains is by using them as factories. Yeah, but even like when we Anthony and I played a two player game, I went almost completely factory kind of strategy, and the two and threes are not bad, but it's not a five or six, which give you really big bonuses. So, yeah, so, you have to buy. Somebody has to buy the lower level trains, well, but they're not always as beneficial. No, but I, I bought three different trains because I wanted to put all three tracks into play. So sure. at least I'd get something because there are some bonuses on each of those tracks. But to go back with what you were saying, Drew, I absolutely agree with you and Anthony as far as each turn of the game, everybody was taking the same actions that's what you know the eye-opener hearing anthony describe that there is so much of a handicap toward the the first player last player um so many bonuses given to the last player to make up for the advantage that the first player has they must have really play tested the heck out of this and realized first player yeah they had to give that much bonus yes yeah otherwise this would be skewed I don't think, as a worker placement, that's an ideal situation where there's just a couple choices that everybody wants. Well, that's the thing. I mean, the first two, three rounds of the game, definitely, 100%. Once you get towards the later end of the game where you have your strategy mapped out, and you're like, I 100% have to move three black tracks this turn. <laughs> like, you just, you know, if yeah. you get to that point, you're like, I don't care about the rubles. I'm taking that spot because I'm first, or it's available on my turn. That happens around the fourth round, I think. And that happens in most worker placement games where you get to the point of, like, this is my strategy. If I can't do this thing I need to do, then everything else you're, falls you're apart. Sunk. Yeah. yeah. Um, there are a couple fallback spots in the board. Like, there's one space where you can move a black or a gray track for one worker. It's unlimited. Anybody can go there, mm-hmm. which is good. So people don't get blocked out completely, um, as can happen like Waterdeep, where if you have enough workers out, everything's blocked. You're like, great. Now, in addition to that, as far as taking the certain spots are concerned, there are certain strategies that I would say everyone has to take in addition. So the Vladstock, the Moscow to Vladstock um, Railway, you want it's pretty easy to get that first worker. That first train line that runs across the top, it's only three spaces, and you'll be able to get an additional worker. Mm, yeah. The the second Don't one. The brown first. Though. Well, yeah, but it's the three. It's the third space, so you want to move the rail up to that. You want to get that because you get your additional die. Yeah. The second but line, you need well, you need the engine um, sure. upgrade. You need the engine upgrade to use to the part. number three. But I think that as far as strategy is concerned, one of the first things that you always want to do in a worker placement game is get additional workers. So yeah. as far as a strategy is concerned, as far as what do I want to focus towards, it should be getting that additional worker right away now, i don't want to give away the strategy there but you know that's pretty much <laughs> that's, that's it that's pretty much you've the... just spoiled 20 games for our listeners <laughs> i don't want to play with any of you anymore because you know the strategy. no but any worker placement game you want extra workers because that gives you additional actions and even if it expends resources early in the game that's going to benefit you in a longer game now if the game is short or there's very few rounds left you don't want to spend actions and resources to get additional workers because they're not going to benefit you because there's not enough time. So as far as strategy is concerned, that third spot in that first track is really what you want to take a look at. Secondary, which is not a bad thing at all, is the second track also gives you that um, marker for a special ability. So, And that is only four spots in. 
So if you get that, you can get a great bonus that can benefit you in the game as well. And as Anthony and I had discovered, having the ability to draw that um, level 9 locomotive mm. is tremendous. Yeah. It's yeah. not game-breaking, Daniel, just, just to give you a heads up, but it is tremendous. I will point out that I did not use the word game breaker. You that were thinking true. it. Come on. That you, was true. You're the game breaker. Now, in, I prefer imbalanced. <laughs> <laughs> Anthony, you mentioned four tracks, the uh, the fourth track being the industry track yep. at the bottom. Um, is that worth spending a lot of time on, or well, is that just an option? Like, well, when Anthony and I, we played a two-player version of this, and we've also played the four-player version I went almost completely industry and got two markers almost to the end. I think I had one at, I think it was 25, and the other one was at 20. I think I was about, what, four or five points away from you as far as Anthony had the win, and I was about three, four points behind him on that. And we're still learning a lot of the mechanics and a lot of, you know, the strategy comes together. I could have put together probably a more pure industry. I think I was maybe one or two actions away from doing that. But I think you can win a game with the industry in addition to a couple of other things. I didn't run the top track anything beyond getting the additional worker. I didn't run the second track beyond getting the special abilities. So I think I was as pure as possible. I mean, maybe one or two actions I could have been a little more sharp on. And Anthony, I think, was first player, so he was able to get a couple of things um, above me. But otherwise, I think the industry track... Is a viable option as far as the strategy is concerned. As throwing, yeah, throwing everything into it. But there isn't a lot of different types of strategies for this game. You know, there isn't a lot of there isn't randomness in this game, so it doesn't allow like tactics to be involved. Like, oh, I need to do this, then I'll do this. It's like there are some certain very good spots on the board which you really want to take, but beyond that, there really isn't much more to it. Well, I I had in mind, you know, the three tracks. There's a there's a bonus at the end, sure. a lot of points, um, but it was sort of hard figuring out which track to go for at the beginning. So I need a couple more plays to really figure that out. But the top track is the longest one, has some of the biggest bonuses. Um, I think an extra man. What else? There's oh that that, that unlocks a couple yeah. white to let you move the white. Top pieces. track unlocks all the extra track pieces. Yeah. And- the track pieces are important because that's where you score the bulk of your points. So if you just want to double up, you know, you can do doublers on the top track. Yep. Uh, yes. And get the extra, the, the extra types of train cars and just focus on that. But that's a longer track. Yeah. I mean, both times I played, I went track one, I went the Moscow track, and then the, I went track two on the last time, um, because track two also has a doubler. Mm. So you could double both those tracks, and I think the last round on just tracks alone i scored like 150 140 or something yeah it was ridiculous it was a huge number but it was just because i got i got up to the final rail piece because i got to the end of the the moscow track and then i had the doublers on the board so it's worth a lot of points that way plus you had the uh, the bonus for the i took the bonus yeah for the cost of the tracks to actually be was it doubled or a couple of it was it was like plus one and plus two for a couple but it was, it was a nice bonus because you add that plus the multiplier, plus every track. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm going to agree with you. Uh, your first action should be trying to unlock new tracks and get that extra worker on the first rail line. Um, your second action should probably be on the second track to get that first bonus token. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get to choose which one you take, and the obvious one 
I mean, I'm sorry. I don't. Maybe it's not obvious for everybody. Maybe there's an, you have another strategy. But you take that end bonus card, and you take the uh, bonus, the, uh, the regular bonus card, because I did that, and I took the nine train on the yeah. second or third round. There's a bonus card that gives you the nine train that gives you oh. that you can buy early, but only the bonus cards are finite. And this is a point of contention too. I had to look this up on the forums. Um, you do get to pick which of these tokens you want. Nah. The rule book doesn't make it explicit. Apparently, the German rules do. So and somebody a, translated oh, that for us and said it's that's what you do. And there's a question mark on them. So that's the problem. Everybody sees the question mark, and it's just because that matches with the icons on the board. But it's just a bad icon to pick. Yeah, you think it's random. Uh, the first time we played through, we played it random. Did some further research. It's not random. It does. You do get to plan a little oh, bit more. Oh joy! That just means like an extra hundred or two hundred points. Yeah, <laughs> at the end of the game. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, we we you can know, dig Stephen, around. Stefan Feld must be jealous. Yeah. You know. <laughs> we could dig around the mechanics of this all day because there's a lot going on. The book is I think twenty five thirty pages long. It's got strategy. It even has tactical hints on one page, just trying to help you out with mm. what to do. Um, but the bottom line for me is, and I like worker placement games a lot, and I like high-scoring games a lot, so I had a lot of fun with this game because it brings two mechanics I like quite a bit um, together, and it creates a system where everything you do in one round kind of doubles up the next round as long as you continue that strategy. That's fun for me. It's, it makes this feeling of accomplishment that you build over time, um, and you're not fighting against entropy. In, like in so many other games, yeah. especially some other worker placement games where you end up with 10 points and you barely survive. Uh, it's just, the numbers are crazy, there's so much to do. You can get blocked out, I think, just enough to make it competitive. Um, it's a finer line than some worker placements. You do have a lot of options here, whereas some others mm. you don't. But in the end, you're not going to have the exact same playthrough every time. It'll be a little close if you play it like a dozen times, I think, but it's not going to be the same every time. And it's very enjoyable. I'm glad I bought it. For me, it's a buy. I like this game a lot. Uh, Worker placement games is one of my favorite types of mechanics. As Anthony was saying earlier, don't look at this game as a railway game. This is not a train game. Because when you think train games, you have a a completely different picture in your head. You look at the box art. You're thinking, I'm going to build these great trains in Russia. It's going to be beautiful. And when you actually play the game, you get this little individual... I guess a piece of rail and you just move this one little piece per color across the track and that's kind of boring and I was really unhappy with that because I thought this was going to be building you know tracks and it's just this one little marker and I kept saying to Anthony wow it'd be really great if you had a lot of these markers and Anthony's like nah that'd be too messy I'm like yeah but it'd really be really great if you had all these markers because it doesn't communicate enough on the player board this grand industry or this Grand Railway. Now, I really do like the trains that you, you're able to put at the start of the, the rails because they're beautiful, they're artistic, and as they go up in number, they go up in mechanical innovation. So from the very basic to the very advanced. So the number nine looks beautiful, and it's a very advanced type of modern type of train in comparison to the number one, which you start off with. So I like all of those different things now, I don't personally mind not having a lot of randomness in a game. I'm not a big fan of randomness because I think it just sometimes dumbs down a strategy or tactics. But this game does... It's so much of a formula, at least in the beginning, and at least with the strategy, 
that there isn't a lot of possibility to do different things. I think that you can play this game multiple times. It plays solid. I don't think that you're ever going to play this game and go, well, you know, that's a little wonky, that's a little fiddly. I think that you're going to come play this game, you're going to enjoy it. A lot of the things, the mechanics kind of snowball together, but because it doesn't have any randomness, because there aren't enough strategies to this game to play it differently, it it has some limitations here. Maybe there will be an expansion in the near future that will kind of open up the game to more. I think this game does need more. I think if it did have an expansion, it would be a perfect game. Right now, it's a really good game, and it's a, it's a play for me. I play. Um, a very frustrating play. Um, <laughs> the, the previous strategic worker placement game for me was Coal Baron. And I like the mechanic there where you were never really shut out of anything. You you could choose anything on the board as long as you paid an extra worker to get in there. Uh, here it's frustrating because you're going to be shut out of so much. Especially early in the game, there's really not, not a lot of options, not a lot of things you can do. The fact that the designer had to give bonus points for going last and the player went first gets nothing. The fact that the designer had to give the first choice of bonus to going last and no bonus at all to going first, and that the person going last can place a worker and go first, it just shows there's too much went into trying to overcome the, the first player bonus. There's way too much, because the first player can still pick that one thing, like get a coin. It happened all the time. I never got coins. <laughs> never had the chance. Um, things like that uh, it's frustrating because there's so much to do not enough workers to do it with um, it's a long long game and I still feel like I didn't really accomplish much in it so there was I missed that little bit of satisfaction I will say though you know the the mark of a very good Euro game is especially at this point where you're you're getting so many points it seems like this game is crazy but we all ended up almost you know, within five or ten points of each other. No. Well, depending on what game, the game I played, I fell behind. I was way behind. Yeah, but there's oh, each round is going to lead to more and more points where you can kind of catch up there. Yeah, our final game, the two-player game we played, was like 269 to 264. Yeah. Like, yeah, you're in the 200s, but it was a five-point spread, and we played completely differently. Yeah, so the industry is going to score a lot of points early where the tracks mm-hmm. are going to score a lot of points late, mm-hmm. and then somehow it balances out. All right, so Daniel, what would what do you think, having not played the game yet? Uh, something you want to try? Any questions or anything? Well, clearly, you know, I'll have to play the game before I can say anything intelligent about it. But, you know, emphasis on the word have to. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of worker placement euros in general. And from what I can tell, this is a very, very well done version of a kind of game that doesn't really capture my imagination very well. Um and, and if what Chris was saying about there being kind of low randomness and this sort of highly, not predetermined, but uh, very straightforward execution of strategy, right? There's nothing interfering except for occasionally other players, um, and they will do so in relatively predictable ways, at least once you know the game. If this is true to other work, worker placement euros I've played, um, it's just not the kind of game that I typically enjoy especially given how long they tend to take and how big their rule books tend to be. 
That's fair. Yeah. I mean, this one's not super long for a worker placement. Um, hour, hour and a half. It's actually pretty quick. I mean, and and I, I definitely. I mean, I, I want to play it because it's a well-reviewed game, and who knows? Maybe this will be one of the, you know, an exception to the rule, and maybe I'll really like it. And you know, all I can say right now are vague generalizations about that kind of game, but you never know. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think it doesn't offer as many choices as, say, Caverna, but it offers more choices than, say, maybe a Stone Age or an Agricola. So it's kind of in the middle as far as as far as randomness and choices are concerned. It still has uh, balance issues that I think not just the first turn, but uh, the um, the oh the forty points for having the most engineers. I mean, I realize now in a game of 300 points, 40 is not so much, but still. You're still <laughs> spending an action to buy that engineer. But you're getting the bonus. You're getting a bonus from that engineer, the potential bonus kind every of. turn after that. Kind of. It's not a huge one. It's very small. And the tokens, too. The fact that you can choose your token, you can choose the most powerful one. Um, the number nine locomotive is a huge one because um, it's the most powerful locomotive. Um, as opposed to random, yeah. But then again, each game that we were playing, especially the game Anthony and I played, you do come very, very close. So it's it wasn't it's not a there isn't a blowout strategy as far as if you do this, that, and the other, you win the game. Okay. So that that's always good to say. All right. So I mean, it's I mean, I think it falls in line with like the kinds of games we like. It's and I guess with a good game, that's going to end up happening. Um, like, it's a well-structured game. If people don't like the kind of game, they're like, meh. Whereas if you do, you're like, this is amazing! So, well, it's a high-quality worker placement game. It deserves a Dice Tower Awards. The strategies are tight. The points are all over the place. But in the end, you come down to a reasonable winner. And I think that's that's the mark of a great game. I'm really looking forward to, hopefully, an expansion will kind of open this up a bit. But you should go out and play this game. Well, I, I'm playing this actually some more because uh, Yukata, the online uh, gaming site, has a beta version of this on there. I don't don't recommend you spend a lot of time playing it, but for me, I'm trying to learn the different actions, the choices that I have during a game. It's a good way to get more familiar with it. It's not the kind of game you can play online, obviously. But uh, if anybody's curious about it and hasn't seen the game, yukata.de. Um, does have a copy? You could at least look at look at it. Um, I want to. I do want to play this a little bit more. It's definitely a play for me. Yeah, I like it a lot. So I definitely plan on bringing it out again. So we'll definitely we'll play more. All right. So real quick before we wrap up, um, we actually got a couple questions online, and I mentioned this at the top of the show. We'll just real quick. We didn't get a ton of questions, but in the future, hopefully, you guys send us some more. Um, and this particular uh, question came from somebody who actually wrote me a really long email, which was really nice, on BoardGameGeek, um, even speaking to his thrift shop find of War of the Ring for five bucks. Oh. oh. Yeah, like, that was... Wow. <laughs> Daniel, find one. Find yeah, one like I'm that. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. He said it was basically brand new. Uh, oh, wow. So, like, someone must have gotten it as a gift and then said, what the heck is this? <laughs> but, like, it's garbage. Would you, make, would you say that the game had a will of its own and was made to find him? <laughs> Yes, very much so. Ah, yes, Clearly. I see. Yeah. <laughs> um, but just really great email. Uh, he had a lot of great feedback, especially for uh, Tabletop World Cup. He even made a recommendation for uh, military and war strategy games, along with some games that could be on that list. 
I don't know if we play enough of those to do it. No, that's a whole other. But audience. we are definitely going to come back to that kind of a you know tournament style play. But one of his questions was about uh, Dungeons and Dragons because we've been talking about the fifth edition a little bit. So um, you know he's talking about it. if it goes back to the original feel. You know, was there something wrong with the original? And are there any purists out there that play from the original books, or did folks just get tired of the old content? And this is from Greg on Board Game Geek. So I figured I'd throw that out there, especially for Drew, you, and uh, Daniel, because you guys play a lot of, or have played a lot of role-playing games. Um, do you know anybody who still plays original D&D or even advanced D&D? I, I picked up a copy, a couple copies of first edition um, uh, campaign books based on Lord of the Rings. And uh, I sold, actually sold one of them because that's what I do. I buy and sell on eBay, too. Um, and I did sell one of those originals uh, online to somebody, and I, I didn't get the sense they were a collector. It's like they want to they wanna use it. They want to campaign with it. Um, because I just think campaigns were, were well-written back then, more interesting, uh, more accessible. That's just me. I'm a retro guy. But... Um, there was more of an en- uh, emphasis on campaigns. I, that's what I think this whole going back in the fifth edition is, is the emphasis on the, the full-size, full-scale campaign. Yeah, I mean, it, it depends on how far you're talking about going back. I mean, fifth edi- edition is, seems to me to be more going back to 3035 than going all the way back to first. Um, first edition had a lot of very which seem to me arbitrary restrictions on things like race and class, on things like what types of weapons people of different alignments were using. So you had to be evil to use poison, for instance. Uh, at least that was that maybe first AD and D. I'm having trouble pulling the two apart in my head. Um, and a lot of the mechanics weren't as well refined as you see in more recent uh, uh, games. They did add some things to 5th edition that's more in line with the recent push towards narrative gaming, a push away from rules-heavy and uh, towards things like your backstory having a mechanical effect. So your background gives you certain capacities and certain powers in the more recent ones. Uh, I'm sure there are people who stick around to playing the original D&D. I can't say I understand them. Uh, I think that board games, role-playing games, all of these things, like any other art or science, right, you over time figure out what works and what doesn't, and sometimes there are big missteps, uh, <clears throat> D&D 4.0, uh, but I think in general the, the trend is towards improvement. Uh, so, yeah, there are people who are out there playing first edition somewhere. God knows why. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, the game has obviously evolved, and not everything for good reason, but a lot of those changes probably for good reason. You know, you have 40 years of playtesting under your belt. That's it. But you're going to have some changes. Me, I'm still stuck in second edition. So if it comes back close to second edition, you know, I'll be comfortable there. And another thing, too, is it's not just the game, it's the players. The players have changed. We're talking about different generations of players that are looking for different types of things. So... Obviously, D&D 4.0 was to a different generation that was used to playing online games like World of Warcraft, where they understood strategy as far as you have a tank, you have a DPS, you have a rogue. They understood that was their idea of a, you know, an RPG. You play in that type of universe. 
not so much this thematic story that takes hours, days, and weeks, and years to kind of put together. It was the strategy of how do you put a tactical fighting team together? A team. Yeah. I'm sorry, Daniel? It's no surprise, too, that when D&D 4.0 came out, you start seeing a massive surge in the number of miniature-based combat games that Dungeons & Dragons is putting out, because D&D 4.0 was a miniature-based combat game. It was, in a sense, actually going almost closer to the roots for D&D than any other edition of D&D, because, you know, Dungeons & Dragons descended from Chainmail, a miniature-based combat game. Um, But in doing so, they lost the whole thing that made it a role-playing game in the first place. At least that was the common complaint. Yeah, it's more like first-person shooters, things like that. Just see the monster, kill the monster. And there's actually, you know, in that regard, it's a very good game if you play it like that as an incredibly flexible miniature-based combat game with a little bit of role-playing on top of it. Um, It's actually not so bad. But Chris mentioned the team, and uh, that's obviously what they're going for is to, to strengthen that team concept of people using their limited abilities together to overcome the, the, the problems that they have facing. Yeah, uh, they, they definitely, and they always try to get that idea of teamwork. 4.0, they hit it a little too much, I think, on the nose, right? There's always been the classic party, right? Uh, the fighter, the wizard, the rogue, or thief, depending on your edition, and the cleric. And that was a pretty understood, you know, everyone has to fill a role. Uh, in 4.0, they got really explicit and gave the roles names and then did this weird system of this weird sort of typology of them, um, which I think was probably being a little too narrow. Because, well, is that because the, the, the characters were so powerful anyway that they had to sort of specialize to differentiate them? I don't know. They, they seem too powerful. In, in 4.0? Yeah. Yeah, they got pretty powerful. Of course, that's all up to how the DM makes the world react to them. Um, And there has been a trend towards increasing power, a sort of power creep um, in a lot of those games. Though I guess we could could have edition wars all day, and we should probably avoid that. That's a bigger issue. (laughs) It's just interesting how in the starter set they've given you five what they hope are balanced characters so that there's enough strengths and weaknesses there that they can blend together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I guess to hit uh, Greg's question, you know, more directly, uh, yes, I think there are people who play the original books and the original campaigns. And uh, yes, I do think there are problems with those original rule sets. And I think that 5.0 promises to be a significant improvement over anything else that D&D has put out. It looks like the best edition to me. It's a solid campaign reading over the book. Uh, And they, they... crowdsourced a little bit and you can see them pulling in tricks that are used by other role-playing games a little bit so they have this idea of having bonds which are special narrative ties you have to the environment which is suspiciously similar to uh, uh one of the many ways that people have modified the apocalypse world system uh put out by baker uh and they have this narrative effects these narrative backstories which have mechanical effects which sounds a lot like stuff you see in luke crane's games so in uh Mouse Guard and Burning Wheel. Uh, and so what they've got now is just they pulled together most of the very good ideas out there and pulled them back into a D&D setting with the whole force of D&D's mechanical system underlying it. And that's a very promising combination. Yeah, it looks really good. And I'm really excited to get it out and give it a shot. Yeah, but, absolutely. So, yeah, um, 
Thanks, Greg, for your question. And anybody else out there, if you have any questions about the games we reviewed, anything we picked for our uh, World Cup feature, any upcoming features, even if you just have suggestions, um, drop us a line on BoardGameGeek, uh, or you can send us an email through BoardGamersAnonymous.com or Facebook or Twitter. I mean, we are out there in many, many ways. Hit us up anywhere. Yes, about the blog, uh, Board Gamers Anonymous. Uh, been focusing a lot on curating the Internet. If, if you love reading about things on the Internet but find there's too much information, I try and pick out the best for you and uh, simplify things a little bit. <laughs> Make right. it easier. Yeah, Drew's doing a, a ridiculously good job on that blog. There's so much up there. So if you uh, want to read uh, in between listening, there is plenty of content available on BoardGamersAnonymous.com. Uh, for this week, though, that is everything. This is Anthony. This is Chris. This is Daniel. This is Drew. And until next time, we'll save you a seat on the number nine locomotive. Woo-hoo! Engine. <laughs>